Welcome to Tzarech Iyun, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for divergent perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivim Panim Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. brought to you by Yeshivat Oraita. My name is David Silverstein, and I am joined today by a repeat guest on the Oraita podcast, um, my colleague, friend, and Rav Davidel Weinberg. Shalom, everybody. Rav Davidel, it's, uh, it's great to have you back. I'm not sure if you watched the Super Bowl the other day, but... Um, I am from Philadelphia. You're, as I'm saying, you're from Philadelphia. I'm originally from Philadelphia, and this is... It's been a tough, a tough week for Philadelphians, but uh, you know that that last minute uh, call on the holding was debatable. But uh, maybe we'll have a separate podcast about uh, about that call. But uh, I don't know. I'm not sure if you're the best person to have that podcast Probably about not. that. But don't worry, we'll we'll bring somebody back for There's that. Real, yeah, we had right. The staff is heavily uh, Philly centric, so maybe we could have just a podcast about uh, how many Oraita Rebbe's currently love Philadelphia sports teams. But uh, anyway, getting back to the topic at hand, uh, the topic that uh, I want to talk about today. And I thought that you'd be a great person to speak to about this because you did write a very important book that at least is loosely related to the topic, and that is the topic of prayer or the topic of tefillah. Now, obviously, this is an enormous topic, and we could spend a lot of time and have many podcasts talking about uh, different iterations of uh, this question. But actually, I came across a really interesting uh, article this week that I thought would provide some context uh, for today's conversation. Um, It's an article that was written by... Russ Roberts. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know Russ Roberts, Russ Roberts is a scholar, is uh, a fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford. He's also um, the host of the podcast Econ Talks, and he's also currently the president of Shalem College in Jerusalem, but most importantly uh, for our community and for the community of Oraita alumni, he is the proud father of three distinguished Oraita alumni, uh, Ezra, Zev, and Ari Roberts. So this is an amazing uh, essay that he wrote. And the topic, I think, really caught my eye. The topic, the title of the, uh, of the piece is The Agnostic's Guide to Jewish Prayer. And this is an essay which is available online. You can just uh, Google Russ Roberts' Agnostic's Guide to Jewish Prayer. And he does an amazing job, I think, articulating sort of some of the questions and some of the challenges that people have in terms of the contemporary experience of praying. And then he sort of raises a larger question of, well, wait a second, you know, if we are individuals who are committed to prayer, and he's an individual certainly committed to praying daily, so sort of what inspirational moments, what inspirational insights can we give to somebody who may be an agnostic, who may be struggling with different dimensions of the prayer experience? Just to sort of open up the conversation uh, to you, Rav Davidal, um, thinking more along uh, biblical lines, right? thinking about what it means to pray for the avot and the imahot, right? thinking about uh, the Torah uh, more broadly, right? how would you sort of start to think about, maybe start to conceptualize different images in your mind when it comes to the experience of prayer particularly with an anchor uh, towards the biblical model? Okay, so first of all, I, I did write a book on tefillah that is not really a classical work on prayer. It's not classic because it does not go through the perish hamilin, it doesn't go through the words. <clears throat> it doesn't even really make a philosophical uh, case for the reason prayer works. And actually, it's, I think it's a perfect place to begin because the, the Sefer really starts from looking at the opening chapters of, of Gracious. It's, it's really a book on the beginning of the Torah um, and the narratives there. From the place of an agnostic's uh, guide to, to prayer, so I think it's pretty clear that all of the early prayer that we find going on in the Torah is coming from people who are deeply involved in matters of faith. Um, it's not necessarily the way that some people think of prayer as being a very transactional type of thing. That might be the language, that might be the modality of prayer that's being expressed in Sefer Bereshis, like for example, uh, the back and forth between Avram and Hashem in Saving Stone is a very obvious example. And many of the tefillos are something which are linked to some sort of back and forth. But if you look at the actual tefillos in Sefer Bereshis, you don't find that necessarily they come 
uh, in one shot. <laughs> the Avos are davening for a long time to have children with no response. Uh, the famous example that I gave before of Avram bargaining with Hashem to save stone is, does not come to fruition. Uh, so the nature of the prayer might be a conversation back and forth between these uh, men of God and, uh, and, and the Almighty, but it doesn't necessarily come in the way that you would think of prayer being. It's more about finding and forming the beginning of this relationship. I'll just add one last thing. Um, I think it really is a challenge. A person who uh, is agnostic or has atheistic sort of um, leanings it's very difficult to imagine uh, squaring that circle when it comes to prayer. And I think part of the reason is, um, at least from the base medrash of Rav Tzadokah Koen and others as well, the Vilna Gon, tefillah is very much wrapped up with prophecy. The two of them go hand in hand. Uh, Rav spoke a lot about this. Prayer and prophecy go hand in hand, and prayer really belongs to the prophet. And the prophet is someone who is in an active relationship with God. And I think that's part of the challenge that this uh, article is probably addressing is that if you don't have an active relationship with God, if you're a prophet and God is speaking to you, well, it's pretty easy to speak back to Hashem, but if you don't feel the tug in one direction, that puts you in a pretty precarious situation when it comes to feeling. Yeah, I think actually it's an interesting sort of way of thinking about it. I think that uh, the title of the article is, is case-specific here. I mean, I think that the usage of the term agnostic is significant. Obviously, if someone's an atheist, it becomes that much more complicated. But I do think that the issue of agnosticism here does sort of play into what you're describing because the agnostic is not necessarily saying he doesn't believe. He's just sort of struggling. He may not know for sure sort of the extent that he is a full believer, but he's certainly open to the possibility. And actually, it's interesting because one of the pieces that uh, Russ Roberts points out here, he says that he was uh, mentioning to a friend of his that he was teaching a class on prayer. And I'm reading here from the article where his friend says, you know, what's there to teach? You ask for stuff and God gives it to you. Right? What's so complicated about that? So I think that your formulation here is actually a really interesting one because you're pointing out that um, biblical prayer does, at least on the surface, at least to me, uh, seem transactional in the sense that these are people who are deep believers, these are people who are not agnostics, these are people who are having divine encounters and actually having dialogue with the divine, um, and they're individuals who are asking things of Hashem. But I think what you're pointing out, which I didn't really think about honestly before we started talking, is that it's not fully transactional in the sense that there's an awareness that it won't always work. Right? It's not that like, you know, Avram thinks that if he definitively prays, then all of a sudden he's going to get what he wants. So also Moshe, right? obviously when he prays, there's a sense, there's a hope, there's an aspiration that hopefully you know, prayer will do something. But just the acknowledgement that you may not get what you want, right? that you're engaged in a relationship, not necessarily the transaction, I think really may be kind of the core principle here of a biblical prayer. right? In other words, biblical prayer, when I initially thought about it, was, I think, very much in the language of like, listen, I want to ask God for something, so therefore I'm going to sort of request a transaction. But I think your formulation helped me sharpen it, that it's not really about the transaction as in I get what I want, but it's more about an acknowledgement of the relationship, right? And therefore prayer becomes, at least in the biblical paradigm, an biblical paradigm, an acknowledgement that to pray is ultimately to have a relationship with God. And obviously if somebody is struggling with agnosticism, that may be hard for them, but I would argue here that, you know, we'll try and move uh, linearly throughout Jewish history, but I think even the biblical model, you know, could be helpful to the agnostic because again, it's that encounter Right, with the other, the encounter with Hashem, the relationship, which comes through tefillah. And even if you don't get what you want, just like Moshe often didn't, and Avram didn't, other people didn't, right? the relationship itself is sort of uh, very much uh, the end goal here, not simply you know, sort of a sense that I have to get something uh, utilitarian out of the experience of prayer. I want to add two things uh, that come to mind. Number one, um, I speak about this a lot with... Uh, with, my, with myself, with my children, with guys in the yeshiva. Um, Amuna is not best formulated like many of the great things in life, uh, like happiness, uh, like, like love, like many things that are a little bit more numinous. Um, they're not usually best formulated through thinking of them as an on and off switch. Like either you have Amuna or you don't have Amuna. Uh, either you are happy or you don't have happy. <laughs> feelings in your life, or you are in love, or you're not in love, it's better to think of it as like a, a dimmer switch. And if we start to think of prayer as the exercise model, like that's where the muscle of emuna is being exercised, uh, I think the, the biblical precedent, precedent for that is by Moshe Rabbeinu, the Pasuk says, his hands were emuna ad ba'ashemesh. Moshe Rabbeinu's hands were emuna. Rashi explains emuna means 
they were portion betfila, they were outstretched in prayer. And this is an idea which is found very much in the writings of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov and many other places as well, that prayer and amuna, that's what I was saying before, amuna, prayer, prophecy, these all go together because the base medrash of, you know, the intellect, the base medrash of knowing sort of like what does the Torah think about things happens in the realm of Torah study, but the, the realm of amuna and building a relationship with the divine really happens through prayer. So probably the person who, it's, it's, and it's really, I think, um, it, it comes from a place of being honest where you're at, like the, the classic prayer of a person standing at the Kotel and saying, I don't know if I believe in you, God, but give me a sign, is way more important than having an agnostic person who's not sure how they feel about faith saying the words of Shemona Esrei. Meaning, I'm not sure, one of the examples that I give in the book is I talk about like the problem of Hallmark cards. And I don't know if people remember Hallmark cards, that might be something a bit dating myself, but just a basic idea of like a birthday card. You go in and you get a birthday card from uh, the pharmacy, and if you just kind of give the birthday card over to your loved one or you know, to, your, to your parent, to your child, it's not very meaningful. You have to sort of invest a little bit of your own voice in the card if you want it to be meaningful. And a lot of times we mistake prayer. It's like, if I'm an atheist or I'm agnostic, then saying the Shemona Esther a few times a day is really a, a very difficult thing to do. And I would argue that I'm not even sure uh, that that would constitute a model of prayer because you're not really engaged in a relationship. You're just reciting a formula. And real prayer means being honest. If you're really an agnostic and you turn to uh, you know, a higher power and you say, I don't know how to have a relationship with you, but I want to, or I'm curious about this, I have a lot of doubts about this, and I'm open to having this dialogue in the event that there's something meaningful here, that's a way more powerful uh, opening to a, to a dialogue than simply reciting words as if you're a believer when you're not. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that, um, you know, you mentioned this idea again that uh, the experience of prayer is the experience in relationship building and therefore it requires honesty. Um, one of the things that I think about a lot in terms of the way in which we experience davening, we experience prayer, you know, I, I consciously try to use the word prayer here only because I think that oftentimes people think about davening and they have very specific associations. I think that prayer in a certain sense um, sort of captures oftentimes what we're trying to sort of not do, right? We're trying to sort of daven, not pray, right? Because the idea of davening is sort of safe, we know the words, et cetera, et cetera. But really, as you mentioned before, the element of prayer really is about an encounter, about a relationship. And I, I think about this in terms of how uh, the model of prayer sort of evolves, um, from the time of the Torah to the world of medieval Jewish thought. Obviously, we're skipping a lot. We're skipping from the Torah, skipping over Chazal, but uh, we do have limited time in the podcast. But I do think that the medievals sort of provide an interesting sort of outlet for thinking about um, how different perspectives on prayer can actually engage different types of people. Now, obviously, once uh, you know the world of Judaism starts to encounter the world of philosophy, Greek philosophy, so there's questions about God's omniscience. In other words, how can it be that omniscient God, a God knows everything, right? Well, how can he possibly answer a petitionary prayer, right? Petitionary prayer seems to be at the crux of biblical prayer, but all of a sudden you get to the medieval period, and you know people are bothered by petitionary prayer. In other words, like, what's going on? Doesn't God know everything? So here, here you start to have some answers that I think will sort of shift the conversation a little bit away from the language of relationship. Not that they're in any way opposed to relationship. I believe that the Torah is integrated, and therefore this is all complementary sort of pieces of information. But it does seem to be, in my opinion, a slight shift. I, I'll give an example of this. So there's a well-known view of Rav Yosef Albo. Rav Yosef Albo you know, is addressing this question of how can um, God you know, answer our prayers if God is omniscient. And he has a strategy where he basically argues that, you know, prayer is about, not about changing God's mind per se, but it's about changing ourselves. And obviously he thinks that through changing ourselves, there's the possibility of having, right, our prayers answered, right? To give you another example of this, Reb Salvechik um, is known to have said that when we say on Yamim Noraim, right, that Shuvat Tfilot Mar Virina Roha right, that prayer, um, charity, and um, repentance can remove the evil decree, so the way he interprets that is he says, well, you know, if uh, David Silverstein walks into the shul and he's David Silverstein one and he deserves, you know, X punishment so, or X decree. So if he prays right, and becomes at one with the virtues of, of the sitter, and becomes somebody different as a result. So the same decree is sent, but the decree has no address because David Silverstein one really no longer exists. There's only now David Silverstein two. So David Silverstein two is a new entity. Right, so I think actually this is another way, and Rebbe, I'm curious if you have another sort of maybe medieval model to think about. But for me, this model of Rebbe Yosef Albo, I think, is something that adds another layer to the experience of prayer 
that I think actually certainly a believer should be able to connect to fairly easily, but I think even somebody who struggles, even an agnostic, should be able to appreciate what's going on here. Because if you open up the sitter and you just look at the core virtues of the sitter and see what's being expressed, I mean, they're pretty innocent while simultaneously pretty powerful, right? Think about what we're talking about. We're talking about ancestry, we're talking about holiness, we're talking about knowledge, we're talking about thanks, we're talking about healing, etc., etc. And the hope would be is that if I pray and I become so at one with those virtues to the point where like I see the world through the lens of the sitter, well then I'm a better person, right? And just get, picking up on what you were saying before, I then have a better relationship with God because all of these virtues are rooted within the divine. So I would actually argue here that the biblical model actually does find a nice corollary in the world of Rabbi Yosef Albo that the way in which we interact with that relationship is not only by pointing our hearts out, but actually becoming one with the virtues of the sitter and then by expression becoming one with an aspect of God, right, which we encounter through right, these specific values. I'm curious if you have any other sort of other sort of uh, layer uh, yeah. to think about. I'm going to play counterpoint here for a second. Um, Number one, going back to the idea of the word davening versus prayer. Um, the word davening, as I've uh, seen in several books, is a Yiddish word that actually is a contraction of the words davuhon, the, the way of our forefathers, meaning to say this is the path which is laid out by our forefathers, which again feeds into this uh, relationship model for looking at prayer. And I think that one of the reasons why the model of the medieval scholars, like Rabbi Yosef Alba, which is uh, something which I, has been, I've heard it you know, so many times in my life from in so many different ways, from so many different people, from Rabbi Yosef Alba and from other thinkers, that's really addressing a very technical philosophical point of how can we twist Hashem's arm, as it were, to get something that we want when Hashem is infinite and knows everything. It's a very philosophical point that doesn't really capture my attention or my my interest. I, I'm, I'm grateful that it exists as a as a way of explaining what prayer is. But I think that for the mystically minded people, and again, it may not be. That's why I think the medieval period is like there's this real grappling with philosophically how do we deal with prayer. But the entire notion of the mystical tradition, which runs through the prophetic tradition from the avos through the prophetic tradition and ultimately really emerges after the medieval period, um, I think is really the bedrock of where prayer is more explicable. And you don't have to go to the philosophical sort of explanation. I'll give you, I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. Um, in Chabad philosophy, which is jumping quite, quite a bit ahead, but in the Chabad Nusach of the Siddur, right before we start davening, there's the Yud Gimel Midos, Shatar Nidrash Tzpem of Rabbi Shmuel. And the last... Thing that we have right before we start the engagement of davening is meaning you have two verses which seem to contradict each other until you have a third verse that comes and figures out how to put these two verses together one verse says one thing the other verse seems to say the opposite and we're at odds we don't know how to proceed until we have this third verse that sort of brings it all together now in some Sidurim, instead of saying v'chein shnei suvim, instead of saying, and similarly, another model of studying Torah is tupsukim with a third one that brings it together, it says v'kan shnei suvim. Here, we are met with two psukim, two verses that are butting heads with each other until a third one comes and resolves the contradiction. So whereas the medieval philosophers are trying to solve this contradiction through, and, and these are our sages, these are our scholars, and they're trying to solve the contradiction by figuring out a philosophical model for saying, well, God isn't changing, we're changing. Instead, there's another way of looking at it, which is, what's the contradiction they're trying to solve here? Contradiction number one, which is of the same type, it's the same philosophical problem. Statement number one is, there is only God, and God is infinite. Statement number two is, we exist, and we have our own petty problems, we have all these different things. And prayer which is the model, that third thing that comes and brings those two things together. So you have a pasuk that says, Ein od milvado. There is nothing but God. Statement number two is, Nasa Adam. Hashem said, let's make man. There's a human being in the world. And statement number three is, Instead of trying to philosophically explain the issue and to solve the problem, prayer is an action that you do. It's a, it's a, it's a battlefield. It's, a, it's a, you know, a gym where you're flexing the muscle of, there's something infinite. I am finite. I have my own little problems. Instead of trying to figure out how I can change the infinite, 
this prayer is a way of trying to build a relationship, even if I don't understand it, even if I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to get out of it. But it's very much the natural feeling that happens the same on a smaller level. It's the same experience that happens between a child and a parent. A child and a parent can't possibly, the child can't understand the parent's world. It doesn't understand the concerns of the parent. It doesn't understand when the parent's going to say yes, when the parent's going to say no. But the natural instinct of the child, and through dialogue with the parent, there forms a relationship that becomes the basis of everything. And the medieval philosophers aren't really speaking that language, which again, that doesn't mean that it's not important to speak the language of how do we figure this out philosophically, but I feel like I'm way less drawn instinctually, and it's, you know, like for example, you, you gave the Rav Yosef model. Have you ever shared that with a student and they turned around and said like, I, now I get it, I'm going to start, you know, like I get it, I, the tefillah is now meaningful to me because I figured out philosophically how, you know, I'm not changing God's and I'm changing myself. It's just, it doesn't have the same power as saying, I don't understand prayer, and that's not even the goal of prayer. Talmud Torah is about understanding, but tefillah is about surrendering and being like a, in the childish sort of throwing myself at the parent, even though I have no idea whether this is going to work, quote unquote. It's more about a relationship of being versus having and getting. Yeah, I mean, I definitely hear what you're saying, although you just basically speak to like uh, two different sort of like uh, religious temperaments uh, between us here thinking about different models that speak to us, and I think that's part of the goal of the podcast is to show that there really isn't one model out there, that people do have different ways to connect um, through different great minds and great thinkers. In the Jewish tradition, for me, um, sort of just sort of anchoring it, I, I hear what you're saying, but I guess for me, one of the appealing elements of the medievals, um, in terms of the question of what has, has this model ever inspired a student, um, I think the answer is probably yes. I'm just taking this more personally. I think the model has inspired me. And I'll tell you why. Um, you know, the Rambam has a slightly different formulation than the Rabbi Yosef Albo. And the Rambam's view on prayer is complicated. There's a lot of scholarship written about Maimonidean prayer. But there is a sense in the Rambam that um, prayer is related to the question of providence, right? In other words, the Rambam has a unique conception of providence, obviously very different than, let's say, the Kabbalistic trend. But, you know, for the Rambam, providence is, is a direct corollary to the extent to which our mind is focused on God. And the Rambam, you know, at least has this potential possibility out there that maybe one of the goals of prayer is to have that time in the day, <clears throat> excuse me, where I am fully focused on the divine, right? That my mind really is sort of connected, right, to sort of a different space. It's like almost like in the matrix, like I'm sort of like in a different zone, right? And at least for that time, I'm trying my best to stay connected in the abstract to the world of the transcendent. And by thinking these things, again, it's very Maimonidean conception, so Melokim and the mind, et cetera, et cetera. But by thinking these things, I'm linking myself to something much greater than me. And the hope is, is that in that moment, by linking myself to that sort of force, right, that is Hashem, I can bring God's providence into my life. And I guess you're right in a certain sense that for me, one of the reasons why these speak to me, although, again, I realize that they're very different than uh, the other models of surrender, et cetera, et cetera, is because, you know, I think that part of what I experience in prayer Right, is the utility. Not the utility in the sense that like, you know, I'm using it for something external, but actually it's facilitating a really amazing religious encounter. And that's why I would even say to my friend who's an agnostic, well, wait a second, think about your day if you pray, right? We believe that you should pray three times a day. And I would advise everybody to pray three times a day, even an agnostic. An atheist, that's for a separate podcast. But an agnostic, according to the models I'm describing, of course you should pray three times a day. Think about it. If he's thinking biblically, right, he develops a relationship with the world beyond himself. That's incredible probably be a better person as a result. If you're thinking, you know, Rav Yosef Alboi, right? Well, he's becoming one with incredible virtues, right, that will transform as an individual, right? And if he's thinking in terms of the Rambam, well, he's able to have three times a day where he is, like, deeply meditating on the most significant expressions, right, of the transcendent. And, again, there are different ways of thinking about prayer, but the way I sort of, like, anchor myself is, Prayer has so many layers, but at least tangibly, I feel like when I leave the prayer experience, these three models anchor me in something very tangible and make me feel like even if my prayers weren't answered in the sense that I dobbin for X and it didn't happen, still I became so much better, so much more godly, right? As a result of either facilitating the connection or becoming one with virtue or, right, having that time to sort of really focus my mind, right, on that which transcends me. So I hear what you're saying, that the medieval model certainly has its pluses and its minuses. And obviously, you and I have different preferences here, which is great. But I think for me, the medieval model really does provide an anchor, and it does provide a solution, and it does provide a way for someone to think about prayer, even if they themselves may have some struggles about 
the dynamism of what it means to pray and their belief in God isn't necessarily the strongest right now, but hopefully through the act of prayer, right, we'll be able to sort of move that along. I'll just sort of transition for one second. Um, you mentioned before that uh, you're connected to the Kabbalistic uh, school of thought and all of its different iterations and offshoots. So one of the challenges I think people have with the experience of prayer, uh, beyond the philosophical, is just experiential, the question of language. I know that you're somebody who's, who's written um, and spoken a lot about the centrality of the Hebrew alphabet and about language in general. In terms of your experience of davening and your experience of prayer, um, how would you say, how do you suggest somebody encounter uh, the sitter if they themselves are not fluent um, in uh, rabbinic Hebrew? I'll just tell you quickly, parenthetically, that uh, I remember one year when the Rabbi Salvechik Machser came out, I bought a Rosh Hashanah, and uh, it was like the worst davening I had. Not because it's not an amazing book and not because it wasn't incredible to be able to see Rabbi Salvechik's genius in a liturgical context, but just because I barely davened, right? Every time I would finish one, every time I was davening, I was just looking forward to reading another essay, another comment. So that certainly is not what I suggest for people. But just out of curiosity, what, how would you think about Hebrew language, the power of Hebrew, and you know, someone could be an agnostic even in Hebraic sense, like he doesn't really understand the words, he doesn't capture the words. So what would you recommend for that person? I think this captures exactly the underpinning of the machlokas that we're having here. It's a, it's a peaceful machlokas, but the two different ways of looking at, uh, at, at prayer as a model. Everything that you're describing in terms of uh, connecting to higher virtues and meditating on transcendent things during the day and, and divine uh, providence in the in their Rambam's view, for me, all belongs in the realm of Talmud Torah. Or of Salvechik's explanations of the Machzer, uh, all belong in the realm of Talmud Torah. It's something that you do prior to the prayer experience. You could even do it during the prayer experience, I suppose, if you're, you, know, you find yourself in a, a moment of needing to reconnect to something intellectual. But the prayer experience is not something which lends itself easily or shouldn't lend itself easily to a place of understanding. It doesn't mean you're doing something that's uh, irrational or you're doing something which is uh, unreasonable or you're doing something thoughtlessly. It just means that the whole mode is different. Uh, what comes to mind is a teaching from uh, Rav Kook. Rav Kook has in his commentary to Brachos, to Einaya, he explains the Gemara about Haomer uh, al-Kan someone who in the middle of prayer, the Shliach Tzibor gets up and in a poetic flourish says, you know, God, you are the one who extends your mercy to the birds. They tell us to do the mitzvah of Shiluach HaKan, of sending away the mother birds. So have mercy on us. We're human beings, you know. So you should have mercy on us just to give mercy over the birds. And the response in the Mishnah is Meshaskino. So you tell him to, you know, you step down. You tell him to stop talking. And you, if he doesn't stop, you send the new Shliach Tzibor. And there's a long discussion in the Rishonim trying to figure out why this is the case. I mean, if you look in the Rambam's Mornevuchim, the Rambam writes, the reason why uh, we have Shiluah HaKain is because God's mercy extends over the birds, exactly the reason the Gemara says not to say. And Rav Kook, after a long discussion about it, says the problem is not the statement, the intellectual statement of what is this mitzvah of Shiluah, what is the transcendent you know, value of Rachmanos and, and having mercy over the mother bird. The problem is that you're doing that in the middle of prayer. Like, focusing on, on a virtue ethic or transcendence or something like that, do you, do you could do that in, 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 in Talmud Torah. You could do that in... If the person was in the middle of learning and they said, you know, you have extended mercy over the bird, you should have mercy over people, that's great. But in the middle of prayer, in the middle of tefillah, that's the time to sort of just be in dialogue despite not knowing. So to specifically to the language of Hebrew... Um, there are halachic uh, discussions about this. You know, it's possible to pray. You could say Shmona Esrei in, in other languages. Um, but the understanding the words of prayer is very hyper-specific to specific parts of tefillah. And I would say that a person should really lean towards uh, saying things in Hebrew, even if they don't understand that. A story that comes to mind is, uh, you know, there, there was an older woman who was sitting in davening um, one of my teachers, Rabbi Moshe Weinberger, was once giving a, a shear, and somebody came over and said, you know, my grandmother, when she sits in Davins, like, I know she doesn't read Hebrew, but every time she's reading, she, like, comes to a certain part of the sitter, she's, like, pointing with her finger at this, like, one part of the sitter. Like, what, you know, what she's doing is, like, yeah. So I went over to her, and I said, like, you don't read Hebrew, you know, Safta, what are you doing? And she said, every time I come to these words that are Yud and Hey and Vav and Hey, I'm, like, touching it, you know? And so 
for that grandmother, even though she didn't know the words that she was saying, she was touching the place of relationship, which is really what prayer is about. If afterwards she wants to read, you know, Rav Schwab's Sefer on prayer, she wants to read Rav Salvechik on prayer, she wants to, and understand the words, of course it's a value. But I guess what, uh, what my Rebbe was trying to say there is that she really got what tefillah is about more than, you know, if we sit there and read it. And I think that's what you're speaking to about this machzer, you know, problem. You have a machzer, it has all these interpretations, and you find yourself learning Torah in the middle of davening instead of davening, because davening is not about understanding. It's about touching somewhere that's beyond yourself. Yeah, it's actually really interesting um, just sort of hearing you sort of articulate that, because um, I just, in terms of my own sort of experience, uh, davening and, and praying, so th- this is something that I do struggle with, and I have seen sort of like masters of the art of prayer, and they do seem to be like in a different space in terms of like, you know, really um, sort of like um, tapping into some type of like emotional energy that they couldn't get, let's say, for example, in the context of, let's say, formal learning. There is a clear break between their experience of learning and their experience of prayer. I guess for me, um, it, it's hard to clearly sort of separate the two, you know. And again, I'm not saying that mm-hmm. like my model is, is is right and yours is wrong. I think that like there could be different strokes for different folks, right, in the context of davening. Um, I guess for me, thinking specifically about Hebrew, although you're right, here I sort of transition and think more experientially and less uh, cognitively. I think for me, uh, the power of Hebrew, right, is the power of like sort of uh, nation building. Um, you know, there is a discussion in halacha about whether or not you can pray in the vernacular. And there, there are some chuvas basically, you know, who were written in the modern period, which speak the language that, you know, prayer is basically the only space that we have um, where we sort of reconvene, right, in a sort of a shared national language. I mean, obviously, in Talmud Torah, there is that element, but even in Talmud Bavli, right, it's not fully in Hebrew, and there's Aramaic, etc. And even on the Siddur, there are some Aramaic parts, right, the overwhelming language of the Siddur is the language of Hebrew. And... It's an amazing thing to be able to travel to Las Vegas or to travel to, I don't know, to Mexico or to travel to Tzfat, right? And be able to pick up a sitter and feel like, you know, when you say Ashray, so every single person in that room is going to be able to say Ashray together, even if, you know, they are literally the Dor HaMabul in terms of their ability to communicate outside of Davani. So that's, I think, actually an interesting example for me where I'm sort of channeling a little bit what you were describing earlier that it's not so much the cognition about understanding all the inherent meanings in every word, although for me that is a big part of what I try to do, but there's something really powerful about singing along right, with people and knowing that everybody in the world who's praying right now right, is actually using the same language, and that reminds us that we don't just pray as individuals, but we pray as a national unit. I'll just sort of like add one flip side to that. I'm curious to hear what you think about this. I do think there is a downside, and I could see, for example, getting back to our agnostic friend, let's just call him Jim for the purpose of simplicity. So let's say, for example, our friend Jim comes and says, you know, I, I believe in uh, what you, Devil, are talking about in terms of prayer being about relationships, and, and he believes, uh, Jim believes what I'm talking about, that prayer is about accessing virtue, right? But the sitter itself, he feels like, well, wait a second, he may even understand the idea of prayer as being about nation building, right? But he struggles because prayer is supposed to be avodah belief. There's a passage from the Sefer Hasidim where he talks about like you know, there should be a preference for prayer in the vernacular because that really becomes avodah believe Like I'm a native English speaker and I want to have a heartfelt conversation with my spouse or my kids. I don't speak to them in Hebrew. I speak to them in uh, the native tongue. So, you know, I was curious if you have any sense about the way in which, you know, we could, even though we agree probably that Hebrew should be the way we prefer to pray, but maybe there is some room for some vernacular in there every once in a while. Uh, maybe vernacular would actually... Make us confront, uh, in a meaningful way, our hearts and our minds in a way that speaks uh, in a more organic way in terms of what we're encountering. So just a curiosity, do you think that uh, there is any room for Jim, or even not Jim, even for uh, Shmuel, right? Let's call Shmuel the non-agnostic Jew, Jim the uh, agnostic Jew. Do you think that there's any room for either of them to sort of you know, experiment with some English or French or Spanish in the context of their davening? So I, I love your example of Jim and Shmuel, and uh, I'll return to them in a second. Um, I think Jim and Shmuel are both in the same boat in that we have to start with the assumption and acknowledgement that formal prayer in a sitter, the way that it's uh, set up right now, is an emergency measure for exile. Um, If we don't start with that assumption, and it's an emergency measure that has borne amazing fruit, as you pointed out. You could be in Las Vegas, or you could be anywhere in the world. You could be in uh, 
you know, in a different continent than uh, America, Israel, you know, Canada, some of the major places that maybe you and I have visited. You could be in China and you could, I don't know if you've ever been there, I've never been there. Um, you, you could be in China and there are Jews who are davening in that same language. And part of the reason why the Shimon Esrei is set up the way that it is now is that there was a very clear sense that we are now being disbanded and those virtues need to be freeze-dried and put away so that we can take them out and munch on them three times a day to make sure that they stay things that we're still interested in. So both Jim and Shmuel are in the same, in the same boat as far as that's concerned. I think the difference between Jim and Shmuel, if I may take a logical leap from Jim and Shmuel, is that Jim lives in America and Shmuel lives in Israel. And Jim is at a big disadvantage. I recently was listening to um, a small interview with uh, the great record producer Rick Rubin. You know who Rick Rubin is? One of the greats. He just put out a book, um, which I hope to read. And Rick Rubin said something very interesting. He said that when he was living in New York, which is where he started doing much of his uh, work in the beginning, he couldn't really appreciate the music scene that was going on in like uh, California. I think the example that he gave is like listening to the album by the Eagles when you're in New York City just doesn't feel the same as when you're listening to it on in the West Coast and you're listening to it in California. And it wasn't until he moved to California that he started to appreciate some of the music that was coming out of California. And tefillah is freeze-dried for exile, but uh, Shmuel is going to have an easier time. If, if Shmuel is just a random cab driver who is not particularly ritually religious, uh, he's probably going to relate to tefillah. Forget Lashon HaKodesh, and that is his vernacular, his Hebrew is his vernacular, but just the orientation of prayer is going to come much more natural to Shmuel than to Jim. Jim, uh, because it's not just the language barrier, but it's the fact that, as you're pointing out, there's something about the three times a day prayer, which again is an emergency measure and has these key themes that are being hit on, are not really the concern of, and they shouldn't be, you know, a person who is um, just trying to flourish in, in an exile, in a, in a place where it doesn't feel like, you know, my, my brother always likes to tell the story about he, when he used to teach, I won't say what high school, but he used to teach in a certain high school, and uh, he was talking about you know, the four exiles, and he was talking about how the last exiles the exile were, and we're in the Roman exile, and one of the students said, we're in exile? It's like, this is an exile, we have like 300 pizza stores, and we have so many farm stores, this is an exile, it doesn't feel like exile. And, uh, but a, a person who's not in a place that's surrounded by, who doesn't have the luxury of being, you know, looking out the window and seeing the kota like we both have right now, uh, the themes of Hashiva Shoftenu and some of the other themes of, you know, of Geula are not at the forefront of a person's mind, and it's more than just a language barrier, it's really a cultural barrier as well that Jim has to, you know, overcome whereas I think my interactions with the random Shmuels, you know, on the street, independent of whether he's agnostic on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of his ritual observance, just the orientation of prayer is so much closer to his heart and to his, uh, to his way of life. It's interesting, um, you know, we've sort of like touched on a lot of different topics here and um, we talked about the philosophy of prayer biblically, the philosophy of prayer in the medieval period you mentioned. Um, some contemporary approaches to prayer. Um, you know, we talked also about the question of Hebrew and the centrality of Hebrew. Uh, maybe we could just sort of talk for a few minutes about another sort of iteration of this question. Again, prayer is endless in terms of the possibilities of what we could talk about, but the question of fixed prayer. Um, you, know, you mentioned just now that, you know, prayer in its current form is sort of like uh, post facto, right? It's sort of not ideal, right? that prayer should be more organic, but again, post, uh, you know, exilic reality, we have to sort of freeze frame uh, prayer. It certainly sounds like that from the Mishnah where he talks about, you know, Rebbe Gamliel says that, you know, we have to have 18, uh, you know, blessings in Shimon Esrei. And Rebbe Eliezer says, well, wait a second, if you have 18 benedictions in the Shimon Esrei, then Tilato is not Tachanuni, and then all of a sudden it loses its supplication and its sort of supplicatory status. Uh, I'm curious if you can sort of dig for a little bit into the Hasidic tradition, because this is an area where I'm not that familiar with, and you, you certainly are. Um, I know a little bit about uh, Breslov Hitbodedut. Uh, and there's a sense that, you know, prayer exists outside the space of the formal liturgy. Um, and I'm curious just from your own experience as somebody who davens and also somebody who educates, um, what is the role of non-formalized prayer for anybody, whether that is, you know, Jim, right, or Shmuel? I actually read an interesting book. I'm trying to think. Oh, it was called, it's called, it's here all, it was here all along by a woman named Sarah Hurwitz, who was a speechwriter for uh, President Obama. And it's a really interesting book. And she talks about how she had like some type of like midlife crisis and is sort of 
re-engage her relationship with Judaism. She started to become uh, more interested and started to become uh, more invested. And she talks about her experience of praying for the first time, sort of using the language of like, fake it till you make it, right? And she has this one chapter, although I haven't read it in a long time, talking about how she started to almost just like talk to God, right, in this sort of like meditation retreat she was at or something like that. And, you know, she felt like she was deluding herself. But somehow that feeling of like delusion actually turned into something really powerful for her. So I'm curious if you have any insights and wisdom um, from the Hasidic tradition about incorporating and thinking about ways to incorporate uh, non-formal prayer in the context of our life. Because, you know, people have all these incredible moments where they want to express a karsatov, they want to express things. And, uh, you know, it's not necessarily time for mincha. So, you know, what does the Hasidic tradition really have to say about that? Maybe you're th- while you're thinking, just, just one more good anecdote. When I worked in, uh, for a brief stint in finance, I remember there was this uh, one person I used to work with, and every night we would go eat together in the cafeteria, we'd bring our own food. And I noticed that he was a non-observant Jew, and uh, he would always mumble something under his breath. And I said to him once, I said to him after a while, hey, uh, Jordan, like, what, what are you saying? And he said, what do you mean? I say, uh, I say, hamotzi. And he wasn't eating kosher food, right? And, uh, you know, I didn't get into the question of, like, whether, you know, halachically that's the mm-hmm. ideal. But it was a powerful moment for him where he just wanted to express gratitude. And that was a language that he knew, right? And his hamotzi, you know, had a lot more kamana than my hamotzi, right? And I started to think about that. Well, wait a second, like, this is an interesting model for thinking about way, not talking about whether that was a halachically right thing to do, but just thinking more broadly about what does it mean to pray, what does it mean to have encounters, and how do we sort of think about it beyond just... You know, obviously that's critical, but are there any other ways to utilize the mechanism of davening um, outside of the formalities of the sitter? I think the most um, important prayer experiences, which then I bring back to the formal prayer of three times a day, have been outside of the context of shachar smenchen marav. Uh, if I think back to... There is an idea, which is found... Uh, you mentioned Hisbodidus and, and Tefillah before... Um, in the tradition of the Hasidim and, and Breslov in particular, uh, Rabbi Nachman has a concept where he talks about this notion of uh, firstborn prayers. That is to say, like, the first time, and this is something we can ask all our listeners to sort of do, even if it seems or feels naive, and now we're much more sophisticated and we have lots, lots more to think about in terms of the philosophical tradition, but I think a, a very important and good place to start with when we're even thinking about this question is like do you can you think back to the first time that you remember ever like really davening for something like really actually davening meaning as opposed to saying the words of tefillah and for me it's very easy I'm not going to go into that right now um, and I think we, we tend to in the same way that prophecy is not something that happens every day uh, the, the davening three times a day which is a very important piece of halachic living is sort of like exercise as I was saying before it's sort of like an exercise so that occasionally we might be able to actually daven so I can think back to you know this I, I will share that you know the, one of the times in recent uh, past that I can remember really davening uh, was at a certain point again I've davened since then uh, as well but I remember when I was when I was not well for our listeners who, who are not aware I left yeshiva for a few years because I had a pretty serious diagnosis um, thank God, doing well now. And um, I remember one day my wife was out of the house, my kids were out of the house, and I was feel- feeling pretty lousy. And it wasn't Shachars, it wasn't Mincha, it wasn't Marv, but I felt a sense of desperation and really davened. And I really had like a. Now, if I start getting into the philosophical, like how meaningful is that? On what, in what way can I justify that an infinite God is paying attention to little David Weinberg? That already. Is we're not in the realm of prayer anymore. So the idea of davening three times a day is a practice so that occasionally I can come to a place of actually really just putting myself aside, like you were saying before, losing that self-absorbed, narcissistic way of looking at the world and saying, I need to reach out right now, and I'm not going to reach out to another person because there's something even more deep than that that I need, and that's a real moment of prayer. Hispodidus tries to you know, do that on a... Uh, on a more contrived basis, I would say. And I, I don't mean that in a, in a negative sense. I mean, like, setting up particular times. And I don't think it's unique to the Hasidic tradition. The, you know, the Chavetz Chaim, obviously, the Ben Ishchai, uh, are famous for having set aside times to speak in their own language. But in a contrived sort of way, what that looks like 
is that and you, one way is you can look back and ask yourself, when was the last time I like really prayed for something? And that might only be a few times in, in, in your life. But on the level of uh, contrived hispoditus, what it means is it starts off really awkward, especially if you've never done it before. It's like, it feels delusional and, and, and by design almost. You know, not only because our sages say that uh, prophecy is in the hands of the delusional nowadays, but also because it feels so uncomfortable because we're not used to actually doing it, actually davening. And forcing yourself to be in a space where you don't have the crutch, the important crutch of having a sitter, but you really have to say, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know what to say right now. Uh, I'm feeling very self-conscious. But instead of saying it to yourself, it's not just the meditative gesture of like, you know, like, which is an important piece of understanding what tefillah is, mitpalel, that it's self-reflexive, and, but I'm actually trying to connect to something beyond myself and putting myself in this very awkward state of having to say something, knowing full well that I'm not a prophet and I'm not going to receive a response, doing that on a regular basis outside the context of Shachar Semen Chalmarev is actually an exercise so that my gut reaction when I find myself in a situation where perhaps it would be appropriate now to do that, I have some baseline of relationship that I can lean back onto. Yeah, maybe just to, just to sort of end, um, I'll reference here a citation from the article that I referenced at the beginning from Russ Roberts where he says, uh, prayers for those parts of our lives and our existence where there are no answers, only mystery and humility. And I think for me, just having this conversation with you of Dovidal, right, has sort of opened me up a little bit to a new perspective on prayer. I think that uh, has for me been a humbling experience and made me appreciate um, the mystery and the different layers and this sort of multifaceted uh, conversation that we've had talking about different experience of prayer. Maybe just as one last thought, I know we're running uh, low on time here, but if you had a practical suggestion, remember we referenced <coughs> the beginning of our new friend Jim, we're going to leave off Shmuel for a second here, although Shmuel obviously, there's a part of, uh, every Shmuel has a gym inside of them, so there's a part of everybody's struggles, and if you had to sort of give, an, give a tip, a practical tip, for the encounter of davening, for davening every day, for making davening meaningful. Do you have any practical suggestions uh, for thinking about uh, prayer and davening in a way that would sort of anchor uh, somebody's experience? I'll just maybe share one myself. I know I'm sort of throwing this question off the cuff, so I'll give you another 20 more seconds to think about it. Um, I try, although unsuccessfully, put my phone away when I pray. Um, I think it's just very hard to really have an encounter and a feeling that you're really sort of moving beyond yourself when you're phone is buzzing and your phone is beeping, but I actually have a different experience of davening, which someone suggested to me many years ago that I found to be very powerful. Uh, someone suggested that when you say Shimon Esrei, if you try and visualize the words, right? The visualization of the words, of closing your eyes, visualizing the words, right? is something which generates, at least for me, a certain sense of mystery. So I'm not saying that uh, it will work for everybody, but I do think that trying to experiment a little bit, the way in which you daven, the way in which you pray, and making sure that prayer doesn't become dull. And part of that um, exercise is experimentation. So I'm just a curious, just out of curiosity, you're of Dovidal. Any uh, suggestions for experimental prayer that you could uh, suggest to somebody? I have two suggestions. Suggestion number one, uh, which is going to come as perhaps a surprise, is that it would make some sense to invest some time, some money, some resources in learning how to meditate. Um, doesn't have to be Jewish meditation per se. It shouldn't be uh, meditation from a place, you know, uh, as a rabbinic personnel, I won't recommend certain types of uh, meditative traditions. But uh, yeah, a part of, you know, meditation app that works on just breathing and focusing on breath. The Calm app. And the Calm app. Is perhaps, great. I'm not yeah. familiar with the Calm app, but uh, perhaps the Calm app. app or some basic meditation um, goes a long way. A lot of the reason why we are not great at prayer, we're not great at davening, uh, as people who grew up the way that you and I grew up, although it might be different, but it still overlaps quite a bit, is that we just don't know how to focus and to breathe. Um, I also not always successfully, but more often than not successfully, don't really start davening Shmonesra until I take a few deep breaths of doing nothing else but taking a few deep breaths. That's number one, uh, to learn how to meditate. The other thing is not to fall into the trap of thinking that you need to be some great Kabbalist with a huge book of different names of the divine to be meditating on in the middle of tefillah in order to use certain types of kavanos. And I'll tell you one that's very basic that I've recommended to students who are struggling with just keeping their minds focused on their davening, um, which is shava l'chol nefesh. Anybody can do this. 
and it's just a way of slowing down and is totally appropriate. There's nothing that's inappropriate from the Kabbalistic tradition of having such a meditation. And that is, before I told the story about a grandmother who was just pointing to the, the name yud Hey and vav Hey or the Yud-Yud that's sometimes found in the Siddurim, and you were talking about visualizing the words, um, one thing that you can do to instantly boost your tefillah is to focus on the name Yud and Hey and Vav and Hey, the Shulchan Aruch and Simon Hey says that every time you say the name Hashem, you're supposed to think Adon Hakol Hayah Now, even if you're not visualizing every word of every bracha, which would take quite a bit of time, especially if you're not mulumad, you're not learned in meditation, um, if you could just visualize the or begin to try to visualize the name of Hashem when you're davening, and many uh, good svarim say that a good place to do this, you know, there's a whole tradition, we're not going to get into this right now, especially as we're wrapping up the podcast, but every bracha of Shemona Esrei in the Kabbalistic tradition has a different vowelization of the name of Hashem that you're supposed to picture, and that Kabbalists do picture, I'm not uh, learned in that tradition, but picturing the name Yud and Hey and Vav and Hey with a cholam, the dot on top of each of them, is kind of like the catch-all. It's the uh, validation that you can picture in all of them. And if a person pictures the name of Hashem with a validation of a cholam, of something on top, uh, that's sort of like drawing up, this is a meditative technique which can slow your, uh, slow your breath, slow your attention, and uh, ultimately it'll at least, at the very least, if you trail off in the middle of one of the brachas of Shemona Esrei, you end up coming back to it as soon as you get to that trigger word of Hashem, which is really, you know, Dalif Neimiyat know who you're standing in front of. If tefillah becomes, and I think this has been sort of my, my, my thread throughout the whole thing, if tefillah becomes about connecting to the transcendent, and at the very least a person can pull themselves back in and visualize the name Yud and Hei and Vav and Hei, even if they can't, you know, visualize Baruch Hashem Lekinu Melech through the whole thing, uh, they will have done a great service to themselves and it will greatly increase their, their power of prayer. That's great. I really appreciate that suggestion. Honestly, I, I haven't heard it before, so uh, you learn something new every day, and I think that's uh, a very effective way. And it's, as you mentioned, Shaved Lechol Nefesh is something anybody could access. So first, I just want to thank uh, Rav Davidov for uh, joining us on the podcast. I will uh, note here that if you're looking to read something uh, about prayer, Rav Davidov has a wonderful book called Birth of the Spoken Word, Personal Prayer as the Goal of Creation. So if you're somebody who's looking to sort of study and explore engage uh, this topic obviously there's tons of literature out there but uh strongly recommend uh, picking, uh, picking up a copy of Rav Dovidal's, uh, book and this was another episode of the Tsarich Iyun podcast brought to you by Yeshivat Oraita thank you so much for listening and if you have any questions feel free to email us at oraitapodcast at gmail.com uh, if you have any comments observations we're always happy to hear wishing everybody a great day